Thank you, Michael. I'd like to have us uh, open to our text for this morning, which is uh, 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 10. 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 10. And it might seem a little odd. Um, we are in a sermon series looking at what it means to be the church and the people of God. And yet this is uh, the first week where we're actually getting to the New Testament. Uh, we spent four weeks so far in the Old Testament looking at how God has offered his blessings and his promises uh, to his people throughout history. And we've been tracing the origins of the church, and finally we're getting here to where we start to see the implications of all of that on God's New Testament people. So again, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. And this is what Peter writes uh, to the church back then as well as to us as the church today. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, there are really two ways to continue a movie franchise. Uh, First, there's the sequel. Let's say you're a Hollywood producer and you put out a movie that people like. Uh, It makes some money, gets good reviews, and there seems to be more of the story that you could tell. Then you'll probably make a sequel to it, right? In fact, if that goes well, you might even make one more, make a threequel. In fact, uh, as long as people keep seeing them, why stop there, right? This is why we now have 30 billion superhero movies out there. The other way to continue a movie franchise, though, is through something called a reboot. Again, let's say you're a Hollywood producer and you've got a movie or maybe even a whole series of movies that you like, but it doesn't really seem like anyone else does anymore. Nobody really turned out for the last one. It didn't make the kind of money that you were hoping for, and yet you still think that there's potential there. You still think that it could work. Well, that's when you might do a reboot, a do-over. You might start again. You cast new actors, write a whole new story, and pretend that the earlier versions that you made don't exist. This is why of those 30 billion superhero movies, about 10 billion of them are Spider-Man movies, because they just keep rebooting Spider-Man over and over again. There's actually a third option, though, when it comes to movie franchises. It's sort of a cross between the other two. It's kind of a sequel, but not really. It's sort of a reboot, but not all the way there. It's a C-boot. Come on, you can laugh at that. <laughs> I like even gave you the time for the joke to land. You know, it's, it's, But what it is, is it's, it's half of, of each of those two things, but all of, of neither one, right? For instance, there was a, a movie a few years ago that, that I think sort of fit into that category. It was called Mad Max Fury Road. Maybe a few of you saw it. Uh, it was a continuation of the popular Mad Max film franchise, which starred Mel Gibson back in the 70s and 80s. But people were sort of confused by this new movie. It came out in like 2016 or something, so just a few years ago. The problem, though, was that Mel Gibson wasn't in it. They had a different actor playing Max, Tom Hardy. Um, There were a bunch of other characters that hadn't been in any of the previous uh, films in the franchise, and it was a totally new story that seemed completely unrelated to the events of the previous films. And so people didn't really know how to categorize it. You know, it wasn't really a sequel, but it wasn't exactly a reboot either. It was something else entirely. 
Maybe it's best to say that it was simply the next chapter in the story. Well, in the same way, this passage, 2 Peter 2, verses 9 through 10, seems to say something similar about the church. It's not quite a sequel, not quite a reboot, but simply the next chapter in God's story. Now, like I said, the last uh, couple weeks we've been in this sermon series looking at what it means to be the church, God's people today, right? And uh, we started back in the beginning, literally in the beginning, in Genesis 1. And we looked at that text and we saw how God had created and blessed us as human beings and called us to be his representatives and stewards in his world. Then we saw how we rebelled against that calling and fell from God's grace in Genesis chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel story. And then we saw how God reaffirmed that calling and those promises to Abram and Sarai in Genesis 12. Last week then, we saw how God eventually extended those blessings and promises to Abram and Sarai's descendants, the people of Israel. We looked at Exodus 19, verses 1 through 6, where God calls the Israelites his treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. In other, in other words, we saw how God set Israel aside, chose them as his people, and made them special. And then we said that the reason for that was so that he could use them as a people to represent himself to all the rest of the world. That was Israel's calling, right? That's why God chose them. That was their purpose as his people, to serve as an example to all the other nations on earth, what it looks like when we as human beings live in relationship with God the way that he created and designed us to, okay? What our passage today then shows is how God eventually extended and broadened that blessing even more, those promises, that calling. He broadened it even further to us, to the church, to his people today. And to start, let's just look at the similarities, actually, between those two passages. Um, I don't know if you caught it, but the language that the Apostle Peter uses here in 1 Peter 2 is remarkably similar to what we see in Exodus 19. Um, Like we said last week, in Exodus 19, God refers to the Israelites as his treasured possession, his kingdom of priests, a holy nation. In these verses then, Peter almost perfectly echoes those exact same lines again to the people he's writing to. Mirroring Exodus 19, he calls his readers a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Some translations translate that last phrase, a people belonging to God, as God's special possession, which sounds even more like Exodus 19. The point is that these two passages are remarkably similar to each other. They line up almost one for one. And that's something, by the way, that pretty much every biblical scholar points out, Um, For instance, I can't tell you how many times our passage for today came up in my commentary reading for last week's sermon. Um, In fact, there was one commentator I read last week who spent almost as much time talking about 1 Peter 2 as he did talking about Exodus 19, which didn't really pay off for last week's sermon, but I did take a bunch of notes for this week, so it was still time well spent. Um, The point is that these passages are, are almost perfect echoes of each other. It's clear that Peter is referencing Exodus 19 here in this passage and applying that passage and those verses and the promises that they contained for the people of Israel to his audience here in this letter. What's surprising about that, though, and this is an important detail, is whom he's applying 
Exodus 19 and its promises too. And that's because while Exodus 19 was written to a Jewish audience, the Israelites, the descendants of Abram and Sarai, in other words, the natural recipients of all those blessings and promises that God had made, this passage isn't. Instead, this passage is written to Gentiles, to non-Jewish folks, people who up until now were not part of God's people. And so these promises and blessings here didn't belong to them. And yet Peter applies those blessings and promises to them anyway. Which gets at something that we talked about last week, right? Last week when we were looking at Exodus 19, we said that Israel was supposed to serve as God's mediator. That's what it meant when God called them a kingdom of priests. It meant that like any priest, they were supposed to mediate or represent God and his will to the rest of the world. That was their calling. That was their task. That was their purpose as God's people. That's why he had chosen them and set them aside as this group of people that he was going to work with. He didn't do all of that so that he would just save Israel. Instead, God chose and set them aside and used them to represent himself to the nation so that he could save them as well. As his chosen nation, the Israelites were supposed to be the conduit of sorts through whom God would actually draw all the other nations back to himself as well. Now, like we said, the problem was that Israel didn't end up doing a very good job of that throughout their history. I mean, to their credit, we actually do get glimpses of it, of Israel fulfilling that calling that God had given to them, right? Every once in a while throughout the Old Testament, we see some outsider get grafted into God's people, right? So there's Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho. There's the Gibeonites, who were actually a whole tribe of people who, to be honest, tricked their way into uh, being part of the Israelite community. Um, There's Ruth, the Moabite widow, and, and there's a few others along the way too. So we get little glimmers of Israel fulfilling the calling that God gave her. But by and large, those were unfortunately the exceptions, Because most of the time, rather than function as God's priests, rather than live as his holy nation, rather than exist as his set-apart, treasured possession for the benefit of the nations, instead what the Israelites more often did was ignore God, rebel against him, and even trade him in for other gods, for idols, and worship them instead. And so as a result, they failed at their calling of representing God to the nations, to the rest of the world. You see, Israel was supposed to be the way that God would restore his creation. They were supposed to be the channel through whom his grace and blessing could flow to all the rest of the world. They were supposed to be the means by which God would redeem and renew his creation. Instead, most of the time, what they instead did was they closed up the doors on that grand vision and tried to hold on to it just for themselves. And so like a Hollywood producer trying to breathe new life into a film franchise, eventually God did something different. He didn't completely start over. He didn't completely write Israel off. He didn't do a full reboot or a complete sequel. Instead, what he started doing was simply writing the next chapter, continuing the story, moving it forward. And the way that he did that was by sending another mediator, And that's where we ended things last week, right? God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to pick up where Israel had failed, 
to serve as the true mediator between himself and the nations and to throw open the doors of his blessing, redemption, and grace to the world again. And that's how we get here, to us, to the church as God's people today. You see, through Christ, membership in God's chosen people suddenly became a lot broader. All of a sudden, God's people weren't just limited to people in one ethnic group who were part of one nation in one part of the world. That's the way it worked with Israel in the Old Testament, right? You pretty much had to be an Israelite of Jewish descent to be part of God's Old Testament people. But Jesus changed that. Now, instead of converting to Judaism and becoming Jewish, putting your faith and trust in Jesus was how you became part of God's people. Suddenly, it wasn't your ethnic, national, or religious identity that made you a member of God's people. It was your identity in Christ. And so that's why Peter uses the language that he does here. That's why he takes a passage and promises that God had originally applied to his people Israel, and he starts using them to talk about the church. Because through Christ... God has extended those promises and blessings not just to people of Jewish descent who follow the Jewish faith, but instead to everyone who puts their faith in Jesus. They might not have been part of God's people before, but through Christ they are now. In other words, what what Peter is writing here is he's saying to people who have always been on the outside looking in that they are now on the inside too. They are now part of God's people. Now, I want to pause here and just clarify a few things because, to be honest, everything that I've said so far is actually a bit controversial, and I just want to try and explain what I'm saying a bit better. You see, some people would call what I'm preaching today uh, replacement theology. In fact, some people would even go so far as to say that what I'm preaching is anti-Semitic and racist against Jewish people. Um, And that's because they think that as Christians... Part of what we believe is that God uh, just basically got fed up with the Jewish people and fed up with Israel, and so he decided to pick another group of people who would be a better option for his plans. And when you put it like that, I can understand why somebody might say that that sounds racist and anti-Semitic. That said, that's not really what I'm trying to say this morning. For starters, I'll just make clear that I am personally adamantly opposed uh, to the sin of racism. But simply judging or treating uh, other people poorly on the basis of their race is sinful, evil, and wrong. And as Christians, there is absolutely no justification for it. Um, Instead, as believers in Christ, we are called to treat all people equally on the basis of their status as image bearers of God. And that's something I tried to make clear in my first sermon in this series a few weeks back. So I'm certainly not trying uh, to say anything racist against Jewish people here. What I am trying to do is simply explain how the promises and blessings that God made first to Adam and Eve, then to Abram and Sarai, then to their descendants, the Israelites, ultimately have now become the blessings and promises of the church. And so I want to be clear. The church never replaced Israel. Like we said, God didn't hit the reboot button here. Okay? He didn't completely start over with the church in place of Israel. Instead, all God did through Jesus, was broaden Israel's boundaries. He eliminated the ethnic or national barrier that had been standing in the way of Israel being the blessing that he intended them to be. He made it so that Israel could finally fulfill her calling and welcome people of every nation, tribe, people, and language 
to join him, to join the rest of Israel in right relationship with him. And the way that he did that was through his son, Jesus Christ. That's what he came to do. That's who we believe that Jesus is. He came to be our new mediator. He came to call all people back to his father, Jew and Gentile alike. He came so that none of us, regardless of our national or ethnic heritage, would be estranged from God anymore on the outside looking in. In other words, he came to redeem and restore us as human beings so that we could have the kind of relationship with God that he meant us to have when he created us in the beginning. And so I don't think that it's right to say that God exchanged Israel for the church. Uh, It's not like he rejected Jewish people in favor of Christians. In fact, many of the first Christians were Jewish people themselves. Instead, what God did through Christ was simply create the conditions for Israel to become the church. To put it another way, as Christians, we don't believe that Israel and the church are two different groups of people. We actually believe that they are the same group of people. The way that scripture talks about this is to say that we, the church, are the true Israel and the true Israel is the church. As people who put our faith in Christ, we might not be ethnic or national descendants of Abram and Sarai, but we are their spiritual descendants through Christ. And so the church didn't replace Israel. Instead, the church is simply the continuation of the work that God was always doing in and through Israel. In other words, the church is the inevitable outcome of really all the promises that we've been looking at so far in this series. A few weeks ago when we were looking at Genesis 12, we saw how God told Abram and Sarai that they were going to be a blessing through whom God would bless all the nations. That's the calling that he eventually gave to their descendants, the Israelites as well. The church then is simply the fulfillment of that promise. It's that promise being realized, actualized, It's the result of those blessings coming to fruition. It's the next chapter in the story. And with that in mind, there are two mistaken beliefs about God's people uh, today that I think we need to talk about. The first has to do with the belief that Jewish people, specifically those in the modern nation state of Israel, are still God's chosen people today. And then the second has to do with the idea that our country, the United States of America, is somehow God's chosen people today. So first, let's talk about Israel. Basically, there are a lot of Christians today, uh, specifically North American evangelicals, which is actually what we are, by the way, uh, who believe that the modern nation state of Israel is still God's chosen people. This idea comes from something called two-track or two-covenant or two-people theology, but it's basically the idea that God has two different sets of promises that are operative for two different groups of people. So one of those sets of promises is everything that we've just been talking about. It's, It's God's promises to us as Christians. It's the idea that God extends his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness to us through Jesus Christ, and through him, we become part of God's people today and are offered salvation through Christ. But then there's the idea that there's actually another group of people who God also has promises with, and that's Jewish people still today. In other words, in addition to the relationship that God has with Christians through Jesus Christ, people who subscribe to this view believe that God still has a different kind of relationship and promises with ethnically and religiously Jewish people as well. And the idea then is that we're actually both going to get saved. 
Christians will be saved because of their relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and Jewish people will be saved through their own special relationship with God. And this is actually, by the way, part of why there's so much evangelical Christian support for the modern nation state of Israel. Because the modern nation state of Israel is a predominantly Jewish state, evangelicals who take this view believe that we need to do everything in our power to support them because they, like us, are one of God's chosen people and will be saved just like us. Now, I'll just say, um, I think there are a whole host of problems with this view, biblically and theologically. And to be honest, I don't have time to get into all of them today. So instead, for our purposes this morning, I'll simply mention the biggest one, uh, which is that this view, two-track or two-covenant or two-people theology, actually creates a second option for salvation that has nothing to do with Jesus Christ. You see, if these two options really exist, if, if God really does have two sets of promises to two different groups of people, one of them with the church through Christ and one of them with people who are ethnically or religiously Jewish. And both of them, both of those promises ultimately leads to salvation. Then it sort of begs the question, why do I need to be a Christian? Why do I need Jesus Christ? Why can't I just convert and become an orthodox religious Jewish person and have that be the way that I'm saved? Why choose the option with Jesus at all? You see the problem here? What this actually does is it it discounts or diminishes or cheapens Christ's sacrifice because it creates a path to salvation outside of Jesus' work on the cross. It says, in other words, that there's another way. There's another way to God. There's another way to salvation. There's another way to eternal life. And I simply can't go there. Biblically and theologically, it doesn't, doesn't make sense to me. I think Jesus is pretty clear in John chapter 14, verse 6, when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. You see, it's, it's not that Jewish people can't still be part of the people of God. It's just that like everyone else, they have to do it through Christ. They have to become part of his church through him because that is God's people today. The church. Which brings us to the second mistaken idea people have about God's chosen people today, which is that it's our country. It never ceases to surprise me, but there are a lot of American Christians who seem to think that our country, the United States of America, is somehow one of God's special groups of people today, too. And it looks a little different than the kind of theology we just talked about with Israel. Uh, For instance, I don't think I've ever met anyone who claims that you can be saved simply by being a citizen of the United States, the way that some people claim with uh, the modern nation state of Israel. I think that even Christians who have a high regard for our country still believe that you actually need Jesus Christ in order to be saved. And yet there does seem to be some confusion in some Christian circles about who exactly it is that God is blessing and using to fulfill his purposes in his world today. Is it the church? Or is it the United States of America? And to illustrate this, I actually have quotes from two different presidents that get at this idea that I'd like to share this morning, one from each major party, so I can be confident I'm not playing favorites. Instead, I'll simply offend all of you. Okay. The first is from George W. Bush. On September 11, 2002, which was the first anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, 
Then President Bush gave a speech at Ellis Island in New York City. After offering words of strength and conviction on what was unquestionably an incredibly difficult, a difficult day for us as a country, he concluded his speech with these words. This ideal of America is the hope of all mankind. That hope drew millions to this harbor. That hope still lights our way. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. Then the second quote I want to share comes from Barack Obama. On June 2, 2006, then-Senator Barack Obama gave the commencement address at the University of Massachusetts, uh, sorry, the University of Massachusetts, man. I'm doing real great this morning. University of Massachusetts, Boston, where as part of his speech, he said this, it was right here in the waters around us where the American experiment began. As the earliest settlers arrived on the shores of Boston and Salem and Plymouth, they dreamed of building a city on a hill. And then he actually talks for a little bit in the speech about how diverse that school where he's giving this commencement address is and how they've got people from all sorts of different countries. He continued, I see students that have come here from over a hundred different countries believing like those first settlers that they too could find a home in this city on a hill, that they too could find success in this unlikeliest of places. Now, after I sent those two quotes uh, to Matt this past week um, to put together those slides, he told me a story about one of his professors at Kuiper uh, College, which I just thought was too funny not to share. Um, he said that at one, at one point in one of his Bible classes, one of his professors said something to the effect of, part of why I enjoy teaching biblical interpretation is because American presidents never stop giving you examples of how not to do it. And that's so true. Because I don't know if you caught it, but each of those speeches quotes scripture. Each of those presidents quotes or references scripture there. For George W. Bush, it's that last line in what he said, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And then for Barack Obama, it's that phrase, a city on a hill. And both of those are biblical references. The President Bush line is actually a direct quote of John chapter 1 verse 5. And then the President Obama phrase is a reference to Jesus' teaching about salt and light in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, verse 14. The problem, though, is that neither of those presidents, George Bush or Barack Obama, were using those verses to talk about what those verses actually talk about in Scripture. They weren't using those verses to talk about God or Jesus or the church or really anything that has anything to do with our faith. Instead, they were using them to talk about our country. They were using them to talk about how wonderful and great we are as a nation. They were using them to talk about how they believe that we as the United States are the hope of the world, and that's wrong. As a Christian, using scripture that way is at the very least inappropriate and at worst downright idolatrous. You see, those verses aren't talking about America. And America is not the people that God is going to use to bless the world, at least not the way that those presidents were saying. That's because America is not God's chosen people. The church is. And as Christian believers, if we're going to function as God's people, as the church, if we're going to function as the people he's called us to be, then we have to get that distinction right. We have to stop believing that the next candidate, the next election, the next Supreme Court justice, the next thing we want our country to do is finally going to be the last piece of the puzzle that makes this world the way that it's supposed to be, because it's not. 
It's not going to happen. It's not how God is offering salvation to his world. I'm not saying that we shouldn't care about our country. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be involved in, in our country's politics and policies. I'm not saying that it's a bad thing to be an American or even to be a patriot. What I am saying is that the blessings and promises of our God simply aren't going to come through our country. They're not going to come through our preferred party, platform, or candidate either. They're not going to come through America. Instead, they're only going to come through the church and God's work through the Holy Spirit with us as his people. Because the church is God's chosen and called out people today. The church is who God is going to use to bless his world. The church is the people that he has redeemed for himself through his son, Jesus Christ. And that brings us to the gospel. You know, Peter writes something very interesting in verse 10 here. Like we saw earlier in verse 9, Peter describes these early Christians he's writing to as a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He says, a people belonging to God. In verse 10 then, he says, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ in a nutshell. You see, the truth is, because of our sin, all of us should be on the outside of God's promises looking in. Everyone who's ever lived, Adam and Eve, Abram and Sarai, all their descendants, the people of Israel, even us as Christians today, none of us deserve to have the relationship with God that we do. None of us deserve his time, attention, or care. None of us deserve any of the mercy, forgiveness, or love that he has extended to us. And yet because of his grace, his grace, we get to be his people again. Because of his grace, he continues to uphold his promises and blessings towards us all through the millennia all through the centuries. Because of his grace, he has called us out of the darkness of our sin and brokenness and into his wonderful light. Once we were not the people of God, once we had not received mercy, but because of the grace, love, and forgiveness that God has made available to us through his son, Jesus Christ, we have received his mercy and we are his people once again. Thanks be to God for that, right? Amen. Will you pray with me? God, we are sinful people. We don't deserve to be redeemed, renewed. We don't deserve your time or attention, your care or your love. We don't deserve to be called your people. And yet you have never given up on us the promises and blessings that you gave Adam and Eve have extended all the way through the generations, now through Jesus Christ to us today. Thank you for redeeming us, for extending that grace and mercy to us, for calling us out of the darkness of our brokenness and sin back into your wonderful light and back into relationship with you. Help us to truly live as your people in response to your incredible grace and love for us. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.